So if you also have your Bibles, um, would you go ahead and open to the book of Zechariah, which is in the Old Testament? We are continuing our series through uh, the Minor Prophets, and uh, we are just a few weeks away from concluding this. Uh, But this morning is a a little bit unique and different than what we've done before. Um, uh, I am not going to play the introductory video that we normally play, and and I'll tell you why in a moment, just uh, time-wise, but... Uh, if you would, in fact, I encourage you, the, the videos that we've been playing from the Bible Project, which you can go online and access them, are great overviews of every one of the minor prophets. It gives you the big picture. Uh, but the, the one on Zechariah, or uh, uh, Zechariah, that should say, uh, that's, that's, that's not, we're not, to, we're on Zephaniah, we're on Zechariah. There's both Z's, but we're not, we're not, we're not on that one this week. Um, but in Zechariah, we'll talk about it, but, but this week that video is about eight minutes long, and I need those eight minutes for what I feel the Lord wants to do, so uh, you can go on our YouTube channel. The, the Zechariah video will be on there as well as the Bible Project. You can access that, and then also as you, you leave today back at the info kiosk, there are the, the, the little maps that are laid out in those videos that you can grab as well. So this morning, um, as we'll, we'll be jumping into actually chapter 4 of Zechariah, and, and uh, we'll get to two verses particularly, uh, I, I, this message is, is interesting. I, I started working on this message about three months ago, and as it started to unfold and, and kind of the process that I do, I kind of look out ahead, and as I'm planning series, and I start putting kind of the bone structure together a message, and then when I start to put kind of the flesh on it, then it comes, really kind of gels, and so... Uh, I knew kind of the general idea of where we were going this week, and then as I started to work on this message, the Lord really pa- kind of gave me a pause and said, there's something very specific and important that I want to do at Antioch this weekend, and it relates to this message and what he's been stirring in. I know a number of people, and I know primarily a lot of our leaders that we've been talking and praying and reading and, and uh, what God wants to do. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that, that the experience that Zechariah, in the, the book of Zechariah that we experience is, that God really wants to work by his spirit in our lives. This is what his desire is. This is what his purpose is, what his will is. And so this morning we want to talk about that. And that's, that's why I want to just to take the, not take the time to show the video, which is great, but, but I want to kind of dive into kind of around the middle part of the book and into chapter 4 of Zechariah. But let me give you the context of, of, the, of this this morning, so we'll, we'll, then we'll kind of walk through it together. So if you were at the park last week, which, by the way, great time of church in the park. If you weren't there, you missed a great day. And, um, but we talked about Haggai, and that was the prophet where the same kind of similar thing where what we're, we're reading through in these, these two prophets is what's recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so, so last week we, we saw that, that the people had kind of, they had been returned, been, they were exiles, they'd been returned to Jerusalem with one of the main reasons is to rebuild the temple. And so, just like we studied in Haggai, the same thing, Zechariah, that, that they had gone 16 years without doing anything. So they got back into their city, and what their focus became was rebuilding my own house, taking care of my family, taking care of what I need to do. And for 16 years, they walked by the temple and did nothing. And so because of that, there's this guy named Zerubbabel who is the governor over the area, and he's kind of been instructed to kind of orchestrate and help this process of rebuilding unfold. And when you've got a group of people that for 16 years doesn't do anything, and you try everything to try to get their attention, and nothing happens, you kind of get to this place and go, okay, God, is this for real? Are you really wanting to restore your people? Do you really want to restore the temple? Remember, the temple was the center of the Jewish life. 
It was the place of God's presence. It was the thing that identified them as distinctly different than all other peoples on the planet is that God's presence dwelled in this place called the temple and God had called them to rebuild it and yet they had done nothing. So can you imagine as a leader when you're trying to move people forward and for 16 years they do nothing? Slight level of frustration maybe? And then God comes to him through the prophet Zechariah, comes to Zerubbabel in Chapter 4 of Zechariah, verses 6 and 7, very famous passage of Scripture, and says this, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You should become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What is God saying? He's saying to Zerubbabel, It's not going to come by might or by power, and we'll unpack those words, but it's going to come by my spirit. The rebuilding, the restoration of the temple, and which is symbolic for all of Israel, the restoration of my people, which is this impossible task, is not going to come because you're smart enough, you're good enough, you've got enough wealth and resource, because you, you have enough ingenuity, you have great strategy. It has nothing to do with that. God says to Zerubbabel, which is very encouraging, because I'm sure he's tried all of that after 16 years, He says, it's going to be by my spirit that I'm going to bring restoration. That word is not just for God's people thousands and thousands of years ago. That is God's word for his people today. God wants to restore his people. He wants to redeem his people. He wants to reconcile us back to God. He wants to do his work, not because we're good enough, smart enough, have the right strategy, the right plan, but because by his Holy Spirit, he wants to come in power in our lives and transform us from the inside out. And none of us, none of us can do that on our own. Not even with the greatest strength, the greatest intellect, the greatest strategy. It can't happen. And that's why this morning I want to take some time to talk through this passage. Before we get into the specifics of some of the roadblocks that we throw up in God's way of restoring our lives, the two key words that you and I have to understand, the word might and the word power, are very distinct words chosen by on purpose to communicate to the human spirit. These are things that you live in that can accomplish what only God can accomplish. Because the word might actually has to do with strength, not just physical power, but strength to do something. It has to do with efficiency. It has to do with resource and wealth. And so God's saying to Zerubbabel, whatever you have, the strength, the efficiency, the strategy, the wealth, the resource that you have, that you think you can draw from to help rebuild the temple and restore my people, you need to set it aside because it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. And then he uses the word power which has to do with human ability, has to do with our capacity, our talent, our our ability to actually accomplish something in our human ability. Now, God's given us incredible power in that right to do things that are amazing, but there's something that human power can never accomplish, and that's the divine. That's the transformation of the human soul. Nobody can do that. Nobody is powerful enough to do that. So God says to Zerubbabel, you can't do this. He's just completely disarmed his leader and said, you are helpless to rebuild the temple and to restore it to what it's supposed to be. But he says, you're going to take the final stone. You're going to put it on top. I mean, you're going to call grace to it. You're going to speak grace over this place that I will rebuild by my spirit through my people. And that's an, that's an important thing for us as a church because not only our church, but every church, we always spend so much time in human ability and strategy and wealth. And if we just had this and we just had that, then we could accomplish the task that God's given us. And God says, no, you already have what you need, but you've forgotten. 
And so I want to just take a moment to walk through in this passage and using those couple of words, the roadblocks that we put up to God's restoration in our life and God's work in our church. There's four of them that stand out that I think we have to come to grips with. The first one is this. The first roadblock to God's restoration is human apathy. So remember the story. Can you just imagine, just think of a 16-year block of your life. Think 16 years ago. What were you doing 16 years ago? For some of us, we're thinking, some of us, like, we were just like, maybe even born, not even born yet. And you're thinking, 16 years ago, I didn't have a thought. Of course not. Some of us, 16 years ago, we were in a different, different city. We were in a different job. We might have been in a different relationship. We were in a different church. We were in a different context, whatever it might be. 16 years ago, long period of time. For 16 years, you need to, let's go back into the story. It wasn't that God's people didn't know that the temple was laying in ruins. They knew that. That was one of the things they'd been charged with to go do. So every single day as they're leaving their house that they're rebuilding and they're going to get supplies or they're trying to work a job or they're trying to care for their family or they're going to the market, every single day they walk by a temple, the center of who they are as a people, and it's completely in ruins. Do you think that they were indifferent? Indifferent means I don't care either way. No, they were apathetic. See, and here's the key. Apathy is not the lack of emotion. Apathy is the choice to do nothing when you know something is supposed to be done. That's apathy. Apathy is a choice. See, we think, oh, apathy is just, I don't, I don't care, I don't feel like, no, no, no. Apathy is a choice. You choose not to care because you think something else is more important or you're afraid of what you might care for. So for, for 16 years, there's this apathy that sets into God's people that the one thing that they've been charged to do, they do nothing. And so they kind of sit back and do nothing. How many of us are in the same boat when it comes to God's restoration of life, God's work? God, God wants to do something in us, but you're scared, or your theology won't make room for it, or your experience won't allow for it, or whatever excuse it is, and so you pull back. And it's the difference between when somebody is fully engaged with what's going on in a space, they don't cross their arms and lean back, because that says, prove it to me. That says, I don't really care. I'm not going to really do it. It doesn't matter what you say or what you do. I'm not going to engage in this as opposed to what? Leaning in. And I find myself, when I'm sitting in a room listening to somebody preach or teach, I know that I'm engaged by looking at my posture. And I'm not saying this right now because some of you are going, oh, crud, I better unfold my arms. I'm not saying that right now. But I know for me physically, when I sit back and I go like this, there's something more than just the physical that's going on. Because in my mind, I'm going, "Ah, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if you're proving. I'm not really into this. And maybe I'll pull out my phone and get distracted, right? Which we all do. And then there's times when I'll start, I'll even like maybe even put my notes aside. I'll lean forward. I even put my, my elbows on my knees. And I'll just kind of hold my face. And I'll, I'll look at what I'm thinking. Okay, he, whatever's being said right now, I'm leaning in on this. See, God's people sat back and just nah, got other things to do. Thousands of years later, sometimes God's people sit back and like, ah, oh, I got other things to do. I got more important things to do. And what have we missed of God's restoration in our life? Because we're just leaning back. We're not leaning in. Leaning in is scary because you, when you listen, that means you actually have to respond. When you hear something, you have to do it. Second thing, second challenge that they face is the challenge that we face, and that is human opposition. So again, going back to the context. They've returned back to Jerusalem. They're supposed to rebuild the temple, but there are a couple outside problems that they have to deal with. The first one is this. They're now being ruled by Persia, and the Persian king has allowed them to go back to Jerusalem. But there's this incredible pressure coming from above. 
They are in a controlled place. They're supposed to rebuild the temple. So there's this pressure being pushed on them. And then if that wasn't bad enough, that the member the, the Jews' worst enemy was the Samaritans. They hated them. They were half-breeds. They were still around even way back then. So the Samaritans are harassing them and distracting them from their work. And then the government, the Persian government, which oversees them, is putting pressure on them. So they're getting pressure from all sides, let alone their own internal pressure, which is, i got to take care of my family. So there's some, some issues that kind of contribute to leaning back and not doing anything. Or, or being afraid of what might happen if they don't do it right. Why? Because Persia still is dominating them and controlling them. They're, they're still being controlled by an oversight. They're not free. And so there's this fear of what may happen if they do or don't do what they're supposed to do. And I think this is important for us. And, and please hear me. I am not making a political statement, but I have strong concerns with the body of Christ in the United States when it comes to politics. Because we have done something that we are, we're not really aware of. We have turned our politics into idolatry. And we live in fear of what will happen on November 8th because we have given the presidency far too much power. Not in our country, but in our faith. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Israel came to God and said, We want a king? And God said, no, you have one already. I am your king. I am your ruler. And they said, no, everybody else around us has a king. And so God acquiesces to his people and says, okay, I'll give you Saul. What a winner Saul was. But God was demonstrating, listen, you can have human leaders. And even David, who were like, oh, then when David arrived, finally Saul's out of the picture. Look at David. David's a great guy, but David messed up royally. No pun intended. He was a king. But he was a murderer. He was a liar. He's an adulterer. That's David. And then from there, Solomon was great, but Solomon, honestly, Solomon had an issue of sexual addiction. He had, they all had issues. Every single king had periods maybe where they were good, but they're human. I think God was demonstrating through all of Israel's history, listen, I'll give you kings, but they will never match up to who I am. We've done the same thing with politics. That we get to a place now where we're, and here's the thing. It doesn't matter if Hillary Clinton wins or Donald Trump wins. It doesn't matter. Because here's the thing. If Jesus is on the throne, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. And hear me on this. And the reason I say this is because around the world today, I'm not praying for an ungodly leader. But I'm not so worried about who that leader is. Because every place in the world right now where you see a corrupt government, you know what you also see? The church growing. I just got back from China. They're communist. This government now is starting to now tighten back up again in communism. And yet what's happening? The church is exploding. There are more Christians in China than in the United States. How does that work in a communist nation that doesn't believe that God exists, that persecutes the church, the church explode, yet in a country where we have religious freedom to do whatever we want to do, the church has been on the decline for the last two decades? How does that work? Do you think that we're looking in the wrong place? We're looking in the wrong place for what we think we need. So listen to... to just listen to what God is saying. Are we supposed to vote? Absolutely. But don't put your faith in that vote, that it's going to change anything. 
Because let me, let me just show us, what's the worst scenario? Let's just play this out. You get the leader in the, in, in, in the Oval Office that you don't want in there, and they do everything opposite of what your politics say they should do. And let's say that leads to a less religious freedom context or a less godly nation that maybe even starts to go after Christians and the church, which, by the way, it's not too far away regardless of who's in the White House. What's going to happen then? You know what's going to happen? The church in America is going to have to make a decision. Do I follow Jesus or do I give into the government? Do I give into the predominant culture that says it's going to cost you to follow Jesus or I'm going to do what Jesus says, which is I'm going to take up my cross daily and follow him? That's a side note. I'll move back on. I could go on and on. Pray for our election. Pray for our country. But I'm telling you right now, Trump and Clinton are not Jesus and never will be. So don't put your faith in them. Put your faith in Jesus and trust him and pray for our leaders. That's what we're instructed to do. But don't put your faith in them. There's only one person who's worthy of your faith and that's Jesus who gave his life for you and rose from the dead to prove that he is the real deal. He's the one that we follow. Fourth thing. The fourth thing, the fourth road, or excuse me, the third roadblock that we experience is our human resources. So God tells Zerubbabel that the temple will not be rebuilt by his might. It's not going to be by your resources and what you have on hand and your abilities. It's not going to happen. How many times when it comes to God's work, we, we don't say this, but we think God needs our help, right? I'm going to do this for God. God doesn't need you to do anything except obey him. That's all he needs from you. But I'm going to do this, and I got this. And, and it's like we, we're coming alongside and saying, okay, I got all this resource, God, that I'm going to make happen. And God's saying, but I don't need that. I just need you. I just need your heart. I just need your obedience. I just need your life. That's all I need. I don't need all of your wealth and your talent and all that stuff. I'll, I'll use it, but it's not that I need it. And how many times do we look to ourselves for the answer instead of looking to God? Perfect example of this. So you know the story. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is really closer to ten to 15,000, you know, his disciples come along and, and they, get a, they get what they have as far as food. They got their human resources and they bring it to Jesus, which is pretty amazing. And they come up with what? Five loaves of bread and two fish. We know the story. And they're thinking, this is not going to work. And Jesus says, let me have it. And then he sits down and he blesses it and then he breaks it. And then we know he feeds thousands and thousands of people. But let me read in, in Luke's gospel. He records it this way in Luke 9, verses 16 and 17. It says, in taking the five loaves and the two fish... He did what? He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And then verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Do you catch what is that? What did Jesus do? He looked up to heaven. When was the last time you looked up to heaven for the answer to your life? Honestly, and didn't have anxiety about it, and didn't have fear, and then how am I going to make this happen? How is this sin in my life going to be addressed? How am I going to overcome this? How is this relationship going to be? When was the last time you just looked to heaven and said, God, I don't know, but I know you do. That's what Jesus is doing. He offered to the Father and said, multiply it, and the Father did. It wasn't anybody's ability. It wasn't the disciples' strategy. It was God's provision for his people. And then there's a fourth thing. The fourth thing is our human ingenuity. So God uses the word power and says, Zerubbabel, doesn't matter. doesn't matter how, how smart you are. It doesn't even matter if you're a master architect. It doesn't even matter if you are like, you have gifted people skills and you're going to mobilize the team. Obviously for 16 years, nothing's happening, so he hasn't really done well with his people skills. 
But it doesn't, God's saying, listen, it's not going to be all of that, even though you might think it is. And here's, here's something that's just profound that, that, that hit me over the last couple weeks coming back from China. So God has called us to do the same thing he called his disciples to do 2,000 years ago in Matthew 28. Jesus said, and this is what's powerful, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You know the this, this story. He talks about what? Teaching them to obey everything. I'm baptizing them in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we call the Great Commission. That's humanly impossible. I know I'm a pastor. It's humanly impossible to make disciples without God's presence, without God's spirit, without God's power. You can't. You just, because I can't transform the human soul. Only God can. So Jesus says this to his disciples. And by the way, I don't think we capture what was going on there because I think they got it. They had gotten a glimpse. Remember, Jesus was God in human flesh. And at the end of his days, even, especially before the resurrection, he had 12. That's it. And then he actually had 11 because one turned out to be a traitor. And they're looking at Jesus and all his miraculous power and all he's done, and then he turns to them and says, now you go make disciples. And they're thinking, he made 11. <laughs> Think about it. But then he says this. This is powerful. Acts 1.8. He says what? Wait. Don't go run off and doing it. Why? Because if you run off and do it, you're going to come up with a great plan and a great strategy, and you're going to look at your intellect and your power and your ability, and you're going to think, this is a winner, and then you're going to fall flat on your face. He said, wait, why? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Why did he say wait? Because he knew if we didn't, they didn't wait, they would come up with a plan on their own. In fact, they did. Between Acts 1 and Acts 2, what do they do? They try to replace uh, Judas. And there's nowhere in the scriptures that God says, this is the will. In fact, who they came up with? Matthias, right? Isn't that who gets elected? When was it, when's the last, next time you hear about Matthias? You don't hear about him. And I'm not saying it wasn't God's will, but that's their strategy. Well, we better have 12 because we originally had 12. Let's elect another one. God's saying, wait, because your strategy's not going to work here. And then if you know Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on them. And this is what's crazy. There was a handful. There was 12. And then I obviously started to expand. And people, he, Jesus he appeared to a number of people before he ascended back to the Father. But here's what's crazy. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on 120 people. And then Peter, of all people, Peter, who doesn't know how to speak correctly without putting his foot in his mouth, stands up on the day of Pentecost, gives the most incredible convicting message, and 3,000 people get saved. That's God's strategy. And then Peter, by, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, by the way, all this God foretold years ago in the book of Joel. This is that. How did Peter figure that out? Because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. That was God's strategy. That was not their strategy. We don't even know what they were doing in that upper room. People say, oh, they're having a deep prayer meeting. We don't know. They could have been having lunch or breakfast. We don't know. They were just gathered together. What were they doing? We're waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to send his Holy Spirit and we're going to have power because they knew that their task was impossible. So with that being said, there's three things that I want to end with, and then, then we're going we're gonna to pray. We're gonna, I'm going to ask for response if your desire is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'll talk about the context of that. So God wants to do the impossible through the impossible. God wants to restore your life. God wants to transform your soul. God wants to bring freedom from your sin and forgiveness in your life. And he wants to restore what he wants to restore. He wants to do his work in each one of us. But there's some things that we have to do in order to be ready for that. The first one is this. Surrender your agenda. We all have agendas. 
Stop telling God what he's supposed to do in your life. Stop telling him what he has to do in order to prove himself to be God. Stop telling him to fix you. Because that's our prayer. God, just change this about me. Just heal this about me. Just do this. And God, God loves you. That's one of the things we had leaders here praying last night. We can, God loves our church. God loves his people. And his intentions are always right and good and the best for us. But sometimes we're so busy telling God what he's supposed to do to be God, we don't know what he wants to do. And so laying down our agenda means, okay, God, you've got a way. I can guarantee waiting in a room with 120 people for the Holy Spirit to show up was not a human being's agenda. Their agenda, I can probably figure out. As soon as Jesus said, go make disciples, all of them are like huddling up, like, okay, let's divvy out the work. How are we going to do this? And God said, no, 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 no. It's by my spirit. Same was for thousands of years ago. Same is for the church. 2,000 years ago, same is for the church today. So think about this. Let's go back and think about Peter again. Peter had to learn to surrender his agenda. God chose Peter on the day of Pentecost for a reason. Because Peter always revealed his agenda. Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut. And how many times did Peter's agenda come jumping out? Whoops, bad timing, right? So Jesus says to Peter, I have to go to the cross and I have to die. And Peter, just verses before, had given this powerful confession when Jesus says, who am I? Who do people say that I am? And then Peter, revealed by the Holy Spirit, says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you didn't get that on your own, Peter. I'm like, almost like, Peter, you're not smart enough for that. God gave you that. And then sentences later, Jesus says, but the Son of Man may die, must die, must be crucified. And on the third day, and Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the plan. That's not the strategy. The, you don't understand, because what Peter's thinking, no, no, you live forever, because then the kingdom of Israel is reestablished on earth, and everything's hunky-dory, and we're all happy for eternity. And Jesus says, No. Peter's agenda came out. Then when Jesus humbles himself and he's washing the disciples' feet in John chapter 13 and he's going around and he gets to Peter, remember the story? Peter says, never. Never will you wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, if, if, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. Then what does Peter say? Oh, then all of me. And Jesus says, man, you had a bath already. I'm, it's my loose interpretation, okay? But this is what's going on. He said, you're already clean. You've been cleaned by me. But what you're not getting is my agenda is to show you that you're supposed to do likewise in your leadership. You're supposed to love people in humility as I am loving you. And then we know that the famous thing where Jesus says to Peter, you're going to betray me. And Peter says, never. What's Peter's agenda? I'm going to remain faithful to the end. And God says, no. You're going to fail me. You're going to fail me three times. And then we know as the story unfolds, that's what happens. That is the Peter that we get in Acts chapter 2. Filled with the Holy Spirit, finally rinsed free of his agenda, stands before thousands of people, and by the way, he stands up, and this is what's crazy. The first thing that happens after tongues of fire come into that room, it spills onto the streets. People are speaking in tongues. People are hearing the praises of God in their own language. The first accusation is what? Oh, they're drunk. That's the first accusation. And then Peter says, no, 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 no. That comes later. This is too early in the morning for drunkenness. He's saying no. And why? Because the first response that we have so many times to the work of the Spirit in our life is, oh, that can't be God. We do it today. We find there are 10 million reasons why God doesn't work this way. And we can give them and give chapter and verse why God doesn't work that way. What's beautiful is when God does get a hold of us, you know what he has a tendency to do? He changes your theology. He does. If you don't believe that's true, then read Acts chapter 9. And watch the difference between Paul before Jesus and Paul after Jesus. His theology is completely destroyed and reworked into what God wants him to understand. God will ruin your theology if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you. Not to make you a crazy, 
like raving lunatic, which is what we're all afraid of, but he will change your theology. Why? Because what you will understand is something that you've never understood. What Paul began to understand all made sense and because why? He realized Jesus was laced throughout his Old Testament that he had memorized. He realized, wow, I was missing him and now I know who he is. Second thing, seek God's presence. God is saying about your life, even saying about our church, stop strategizing and start seeking. Start seeking him. I know whatever they were doing, most likely, if they're waiting, they're saying, okay, God, I'm 120 or gather. We're waiting for you to do something. So we're looking to you. We're looking to heaven. We're expecting. You said you're going to do something, so we're waiting. And so there's this seeking. There's this posture of leaning in. And that is so important because the danger that you and I have about the way we strategize about our spiritual growth and God's restoration, even our church, is that we can come with great plans. And you know what most of the time we end up doing? We come with this great plan. And then what do we do at the end? We say, God, would you bless it? Would you, would you just make it work? And meanwhile, God's going, you never asked me. You never asked me. Why? Because God's already blessing his work. God's already blessing his will. And it's our responsibility to seek him and discover what it is. And then guess what? You don't even have to ask God to bless it. He's already going to do that. He's already going to do that in your life. But how many times do you and I make an assumption about what we think God wants, and then we go running with it, only to find out that we've made a huge mistake? I think I've told the story before. When I was sick at home from school one day, I heard my mom running a bath, and I thought, how kind of her, that on, on a day when I'm sick, that she would actually make a bath. This when I was a little kid. And so she finished running the bath, and she had to run to the grocery store, so she left. And so I went to the bathroom. I slipped into this water. It was a little cold. I couldn't understand why. had a really strong odor to it, but I thought, oh, how nice that my mom has prepared a bath for me. And then I got out, and I drained the, the, the tub, and I got back to my clothes. I got back into bed, and my mom came home, and she said, what happened to the tub? Where's the water? I said, what do you mean, where's the water? She goes, did you take a bath? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, no. She goes, that was full of bleach. I was trying to bleach the bathtub. I wasn't running a bath for you. And of course, I never bothered to ask her, mom, what are you doing? Do you want me to take a bath? No, I just assumed, ended up taking a nice bleach bath. So I was pretty clean that day, very clean that day. <laughs> How many times are you and I taking a bleach bath and thinking, wow, this is what God wanted me to do. And God's saying, no, that's not what I asked you to do. Because you never bothered to seek me. You never bothered to listen. What am I doing in the world? What am I doing at Antioch? What am I doing in Simi Valley? What am I doing in your life? Seeking him and listening. Sometimes it's the hardest thing because we always fill in the blanks for God. And then finally, we have to submit to God's strategy. And that means that God has a strategy. God has a purpose and a will and a reason for what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And we have to tap into that. We have to respond to that. And that means that, that the way God works doesn't usually, most of the time, does not follow the script that we lay out for him. It doesn't. If you read through the Bible, when Jesus healed people, it never followed a script. That's why it's crazy when people try to create some kind of a, okay, here's what you have to do in this order, and then God heals. Uh-uh. Jesus is spitting in the mud and wiping it on people's faces. Sometimes he would command, other times he would lay hands. One time he wasn't even doing anything actively, and a woman touched, touched his clothing, and boom, she got healed. Go figure, where's the equation for that one? There isn't one. Jesus did that for a reason, because he knew that human beings would always try to figure out the formula, because we feel safe with the formula. Oh yeah, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three, boom, and God, nope, doesn't work that way. Because God has a strategy and agenda for our lives. So let me, let me end with this. In fact, I'm going to ask 
the worship team to come and join me. I'm going to share a little bit about my experience in China, and that's going to lead to a time of prayer and worship together as we close. So obviously you know that I, I was in China. When you go to China and you see what God's doing in the church, it kind of ruins you in a good way. So there are two times in my life where God's spirit came in such power that you there was no question that God's presence was there and that you could feel it. And God was doing something. One was when I was filled with the Holy Spirit at the age of 13 in my English class when God delivered me from anxiety. The second time happened two weeks ago in China. So let me kind of give you the the context so you understand what's what's going on. So my dad and I went to China to work with house church leaders. So these these are leaders of churches that are illegal churches in China. And so we were in a factory for four days, and because, that, because the government has cameras everywhere, we were out of, out of sight, and we were teaching on the kingdom of God, and so my dad would teach kind of the, the bulk of the teaching in the morning and in the afternoon, and then in the later afternoon, I would take what we'd do a practicum, which I would give kind of some examples of what this looks like in the local church or in life, and then I would give them questions to dialogue around in order for them to embrace what's going on. So this is all through interpretation, through an interpreter. And so we get to the second day, and we had talked about the power of the kingdom of God. It comes through being filled with the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. And so this room is 120 liters, and just so you kind of get a, a picture, a context, there are five kind of what have, five identified streams of house churches in China, which represents millions of Christians. So this room in particular had leaders representing two of those streams. So in that room, those leaders represented probably estimates of 30 to 50 million Christians in China. And so as, as I'm explaining in the practicum section about the work of the Holy Spirit, what he's done in my life, what he wants to do in the local church, what that looks like, I gave them some questions and, and not knowing, again, what, what, what's going on in the background. But one of the questions was this, and, and I tried to be very, very kind of general in, the, in my terms to make sure that it was kind of encompassing. So I asked the question, if you've experienced being filled empowered or baptized with the Holy Spirit, then when you break up into groups, share that with the people around you and what that what God did in your life. And then some other questions. So then I went to dismiss them to to go into their groups. Their leader stands up and he said, We're confused. I'm like, this is not good. I'm thinking the interpreter say something wrong or did I say something wrong? So he begins to explain, so you need to understand that the context for China and the church is vastly different than, than the context for the church in the US. What's happened is God has so rapidly grown his church that their theology is having to catch up with their experience. They don't have, I mean, there are people in the room there that have a first grade education who lead a church of a thousand people. Their theology is catching up with their experience. See, in the United States, we have the opposite problem. We have so much theology, we explain away God. Our theology is outdistance our experience, so we always explain our theology first and then tell 10 reasons why God can't do it that way. In China, they just say, God, do it. So this is what happens. Because of this, different thoughts and different theologies have made their way into China, into their kind of mixed bag of theology. So their leader stands up and he says, listen, you use the word baptism. He said, we've, we've heard that when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all baptized into one baptism, that when you are baptized into the body of Christ, that you are saved and you receive the fullness of the Spirit all at once, that there is no secondary experience. And I said, well, that, that can be true, that there could be a moment where you receive salvation. And that's true at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is deposited in you. But then from the experience of most people across the globe who've experienced the fullness of the Spirit, 
there's a moment in their life where they finally, they've gotten all of the Holy Spirit at salvation, but the Holy Spirit finally gets all of who they are. So he has this question, and I can tell there's confusion in the room, and it's stirring. And so I would go to Acts 19, and I explain when, when Paul shows up in Ephesus, they say, hey, we've had John's baptism, but, but we don't know who, who's the Holy Spirit. And then what does it say? Paul, lays, Paul prays, and boom, they are filled with, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I explain this, and they look at me, and I can tell with even out translation, it's not sinking in. And so my dad and I had already kind of thought this question may come up. And he's the heavy theologian, so I look at him. I said, Dad, you're up. And he said, okay. So he stands up in 30 minutes, completely spontaneous. In fact, he told me afterwards he had never shared this publicly ever. So they went to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul makes this statement about one baptism. He said, so it seems to indicate Paul saying one baptism, but he said, we get stuck on terminology. He goes, go back to Acts chapter 9. What happens in Acts chapter 9? Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. And when he appears in this light, he sees Jesus, he knows who Jesus is, but then he becomes blind. And from what we can tell from what the record is in Acts chapter 9, three days go by. Paul's stuck in his blindness until someone comes along and lays hands on him and prays. And at that moment, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. The scales fall off his eyes. He can see, and then you know the course of Paul's life changes dramatically after that. So when you look at Paul's experience in Acts chapter 9, you know from his own personal experience, he's not saying that you get everything at that one baptism. He can't be, because he'd be denying his own experience. He's saying we are all baptized into one, one body in a sense of unity. And so my dad's explaining this. He sits down after 30 minutes, their leader pops up, and this is what he says. He said, we've been waiting for this. He goes, this, this is what we've been waiting for. And then another leader, and then another leader. Five leaders get up and they say, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we didn't know was going on. In that room, in those 120 leaders, there were already fractures theologically. Some were saying, oh, there's only one baptism. You get everything at that. Some are saying, no, there's a second work of grace. And then the Holy Spirit shows up. And they started to fracture. This is the tragedy of what was going on. Two out of five of the streams of the house churches were beginning to fracture. Millions of Christians beginning to fracture over theological Jargon, baptism, filled, empowered. And when my dad spoke up, I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they said, this is what we've been waiting for. And their leader said, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. So they bring the worship team up and he prays and boom, the room was electric. There's 120 people who are, some are on their face, some are standing, some are praying for each other. I couldn't understand anything because it's all in Chinese. And I'm watching this happen. And I'm looking around the room and just so you know, honestly, it was very selfish on my part because I'm sitting in this room and I literally almost physically can feel the wind swirling around me. I'm like, God, I'm here. Me too. I know I'm not Chinese, but I would love for your spirit to touch me. And nothing happened to me internally, but I'm watching this unfold and I'm going, God, I cannot deny. This is, this is so powerful. And then I look over and the seat next to me is my dad and he's got his Bible open and he's just sobbing. His tears are just being soaked up by the pages of his Bible. And he gets up again and he says, listen, he said, God is saying something very specifically to you today. He listed a bunch of things and the last thing he said, he said, listen, God is saying, I'm healing my body. And the moment he said that, they all began to sob. They all were in tears because they realized what had happened is that these fractures had made their way in and were beginning to destroy this beautiful work, 140 million Christians in China. And God's saying, oh no, oh no, 
I'm not going to let the separations of denominations and theological distinctions destroy my work in this country. It's been too pure. It's been too right. And so when I sat in that room, I realized that God was doing something profound for millions of Christians in China, and I got to have a front row seat to it. We'll see how that unfolds. And the reason I share with that with you today is because I'm telling you, that was not on my teaching agenda. In fact, all that I did was ask the right or the wrong question that caused a controversy that led to the Holy Spirit coming and then being transformed. And I share that this morning because in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward if you want to be filled with the Spirit. And this is what I'm going to say to you. Please leave your script and your agenda at your seat. And I say that on two extremes because some come here with theological distinctions that says, ah, God doesn't work that way. Others come with extreme views that says this is the way God works and it comes descriptive in certain ways of screaming or crying or whatever it is, something really crazy. Then we know God's shown up. And what I'm saying is, can you please leave that? Because when God moves, God moves the way he wants to. And our responses to him are what he wants, not what we want. So that means that sometimes you may speak in another tongue. Sometimes you might experience healing. Sometimes God may give you something about somebody else in the room. Sometimes you won't feel anything. But eventually you'll know when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, was, it took a year before I actually was filled, knowing that I was filled. You're filled in the moment when you ask. It's true. Jesus said, if you ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give you a snake. He's going to give you his spirit. Why? Because he gives good gifts to his kids. So when we pray, you're filled, but you may not know it but you may know it. But you wait until God comes on you and you know. And I've had that spirit. So many people who said, I prayed and nothing happened. And a week later, a month later, a year later, God comes on them and they're like, wow. And I don't know why God does that, but guess what? He's God. So I'm going to ask you, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, would you come? You can just spread out across here and stand here. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a song together. We're going to go a little longer today. But I want you to not be afraid, okay? God said to me last night, I want this for my church. In fact, I know he wants it because he wanted it 2,000 years ago and he wants it today. He wants us to be filled with his spirit. He wants us to experience that power. He wants us to be transformed. And so if that's you, I would encourage you, don't be afraid. And that means if, even if you've experienced being filled with the Holy Spirit, but you desire that deeper work again in you because Paul says to keep on being filled, then get up here. Don't be afraid. So I'm just going to wait. And if nobody comes up, then maybe we're all leaning back. And God's saying, are you going to lean in? Or do you want this? Are you going to risk? So I'm just going to wait for a few moments to do that. And then we're going to pray. You can transform our souls. 
Lord, you can change our church. You can change our city. You can save the world. That's what you said 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't changed, that you've called us to experience your power. So, Lord, as we worship, as we pray, as we give you, your, give our attention and our hearts to you, surrender ourselves, would you come and fulfill your agenda in us this morning by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him.
continue to ask Him to come and fill you. Would you come and work your way into every aspect of our life and do 
that work of restoration that only you can do, Lord Jesus. I know it'll look different for each of us, but you're God and you know what's best for us. So Jesus, as we conclude this morning, I pray that as we go, we know that your spirit goes with us because he lives inside of us and he has filled us. And now we want to experience what a spirit-filled life looks like. Show, Show us that. Show us even today when we step out of this building what life is different, how life is different, what it's supposed to look like according to your purpose. In Simi Valley as it is in heaven, in Antioch as it is in heaven, in my life as it is in heaven, your will be done in us, Jesus. In your name, Lord. Amen, amen. Would you just say thank you to Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for your presence, your spirit. we probably could hang out here for a lot longer but practically there's more people who need to come in here and experience God's presence and so so yeah they can join us that's right we'll make more room but this is really part of I think what God's doing is now it's not just what happens here it's what happens there and God's going to meet us and for some of you might think you know what it was great worship I didn't feel anything just wait you will know when the Holy Spirit comes on you there will be no mistaking it because he is present in our lives amen so let's go and experience him in every aspect of our lives let's go live it out God bless you